Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day, and this is a podcast about some of the striking ideas that are in the air and up for discussion at the 8th Global Peter Drucker Forum, which takes place in Vienna every year. This year's forum theme is the Entrepreneurial Society, and with me for this podcast is Roger Martin, who for a long time was Dean of the Rotman School of Business in Toronto, and now runs something associated with it called the Martin Prosperity Institute. And that's a difficult title, really. You have to explain it and what you're doing. We're working on the future of democratic capitalism. I am concerned about the intersection of those two things. It's a tricky thing to intersect them uh, because what you need is 51% of the population, if you're in a democracy, to believe in the form of capitalism you're pursuing. That worked in the United States for many, many years because the 51st percentile family was always advancing. The challenge now is that for the last quarter century, the 51st percentile family hasn't advanced, and that then strains the ability to have them want to vote for the continuation of the current form of democracy. So you're not saying that capitalism is a busted flush, but you're saying they're very severe imperfections, not just intellectually, but also as experienced by an awful lot of people. Yes. And that may have led to certain election results in various places very recently. I think that's right, yeah. It hasn't been working out enough for the electorate. And and I think it's a big challenge because it did work out for the electorate for so long, for so, so very long. That unity of purpose after the Second World War where businesses and personal prosperity in many places increased uh, over and over again, year after year. And that was the embedded expectation, yes. not a hope, yes. an expectation. Yes. yes, I think it became an incredibly implicit expectation. That's just the way life is. And that's why the last period has been so unsettling, because it was just assumed that it would all work. Now, some people would say, oh, this is a technology thing. It's the rise of the robots. That's what's eroding the uh, uh, the jobs and the pricing power of the worker. You go wider than that, though you probably bring technology into it as well. I think two forces are blamed for the situation more than anything else, technology and globalization. I don't think they're irrelevant. Right? They're, they're consequential, but I, I don't think they, they tell the whole story. And I think what's really happened is there's been a displacement of the most critical asset in the economy from capital to talent. And what's happening is high-end talent those who have a specific differentiated skill that enables them to earn great amounts and actually have the balance of power over capital. And so that's why the top 1% is growing so fast in, in their income, and that's why anybody who doesn't have a differentiated, unique talent to offer is having such a hard time. Bright people go into Wall Street and the city of London, and that becomes... A separate thing, a separate engine called financial capitalism? Yes, that as well, but also other fields of uh, highly successful executives, etc. But the biggest, the biggest chunk is, has been the financially oriented talent. 
And that does a lot of damage to all sorts of things that we've taken for granted for about a hundred years. The, the Henry Ford mass production model, big corporations dealing with mass production and the capital demands of mass production. Now that's not over, but it's being severely changed in the 21st century. Yes, absolutely. And what's happened, I think, is this knock-on effect. So talent in the form of senior executives who are getting huge compensation, hedge funds, all, all these people. Talent is grabbing so much of the spoils from capital that capital is saying, I want a return, and they're turning to their managers and saying, you've got to cut something, and what they're cutting is labor. They are suppressing the economic returns to labor, and the problem, of course, is that the big chunk of the economy is in those hands. And if you want a democracy, those people have to be exceeding. You haven't mentioned entrepreneurship, and that's what this particular forum is all about. And you've already been on a panel addressing it, and you have a way of bringing entrepreneurship into this this atrophying of uh, conventional capital, don't you? Yes, I do. I think entrepreneurs are a great force in creating things that don't now exist, which is a pie-expanding, an inherently sort of pie-expanding characteristic. So a good thing. A, A good thing. The challenge, though, I think, is that what we need are more entrepreneurs who actually create entrepreneurial ventures that utilize the best of people. So there's a wonderful woman whom I'm working with named Zainab Ton at MIT who's written a book called The Good Jobs Strategy that I'd recommend to everybody who shows that companies, entrepreneurial startups that are now large like Costco and Trader Joe's have entrepreneurial strategies that make the most of their workers. They encourage their workers not to just do routine activities, but to help design the way customers are served, the assortments in stores, etc. And so we need entrepreneurs who say, rather than trying to squeeze down labor to subsistence wages, what I'm going to do is have a product offering that requires the best of people. That liberates the creativity of the people who work for a company company which has been suppressed or bureaucratized for an awful long time as companies grew and the departments within which people worked grew. So you began to work for your department, not for the purposes and the end products and services that the corporation as a whole produced. Yes, that's absolutely right. And the good news and why I love Zainab's work so much is she shows that that makes for higher wages, better jobs for the employees and the company makes more money. People have treated it as a trade-off, right? We can either pay our people well and not make much money or keep our wages low and make more money. She says, "Mm mm-mm, that's not the equation. Well, there has been a spectacular sort of event around that this year, hasn't there, at Walmart, which raised the wages of a lot of its workers after getting a lot of stick and opposition about that. And kind of, at the moment, rudimentary first stages appears to be working, doesn't it? Yes, I think it's the start. What Zainab Tan would say is that you have to build that into an overall system. She would argue, and I've always argued, is that you don't want to try and force companies to pay more money to employees who they're not enabling to be productive. You want to enable them to be more productive so that you can pay them more. And the question will be, will Walmart follow up and help them 
be more productive so it all makes sense. Because in looking at a conventional company, what you're asking them to do may be a whole-scale job review by the company and by the individual workers right across the board. That's right. That's right. I think it's thinking differently. Thinking What, what I would say happened to too great an extent toward the end of the 20th century or the second half of the 20th century is essentially in order to scale and get big, lots of companies actually said, you know, if you as a human being acted more like a machine and we treated you more like a sh- machine, it would be easier to scale. And what they didn't realize, I don't think, and thought through is, well, if we take away your ability to think and your creativity, you won't be worth much. And in fact, a machine would be better than you. And we've got to reverse and that's what that. we're seeing now with the rise of the robot. Yes, absolutely. We've encouraged the rise of the robot by making people like crummy robots. Because people aren't as good as a robot at robotic stuff. People are light years ahead of robots on non-robotic things. Let's get back to uh, what you've been talking about at this forum. You said the capital markets have become a negative impact on the way business works. And that's not just a general observation about capitalism. That's a very specific observation about how companies relate to their shareholders in terms of bonds and uh, equity expansion. They've congealed because of the capital markets. That's what I think. And I'm referring in particular to the public equity markets, which is our, our you know, equity. They've, they've invested equity in companies. But I think there's an increasing pressure by those equity holders to get the companies to behave more you know, dull and boringly, consistently, as if they were a bond. And so I think there's this schism between what the actual investment was, equity, and what those equity investors are pressuring the companies to do. So they want predictability, the shareholders do, and they want incremental advance, and they want the company kind of to stay doing the same things but better or bearing down on costs? Yes. They always reward when when there's a giant layoff to reduce costs. They always reward that. When somebody says, we're going to make this this huge investment in the next breakthrough, it's like, whoa, 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 hold it. What What are you doing? And They should be saying, yes, we want you to do that, but they're not. This is a uh, sort of uh, lifetime thing, though, isn't it? Companies have a certain lifetime. 80 years is quite old for a company, and by that stage, it's it's on the whole. It's invested in huge capital assets, and it's, it's nurturing them rather than having the ability to think outside the capital assets box. I think that's true, but you have to ask, you know, what's the cause and the effect there? Like, I think a big cause of that is the pressure an increasing pressure from the capital markets to say, I want consistent outcomes. And it turns out that there's a null set of companies that grow fast and consistently. That's a unicorn. That doesn't doesn't exist. So actually, if the capital markets want you to grow fast, they should want you to grow inconsistently so. And that's what they hate. And that's what they hate. And then they wonder why you're not growing faster. Okay, resolve that then within current capitalism. Resolve it, please. My view is that I think we have to have a a greater distinction between the kinds of activities we fund with various kinds of capital. We've got a capital market, the venture capital financing market that is financing rapid growth, risk, exploration. You know, there's a a known fact in the venture funding business that half of the things you fund, you're going to get nothing back, right? And you, but you're going to have a couple of, have a hit. So they're financing exploration that is highly variable. 
I think that traditional capital markets, the S&P 500 part of the, part of the market, they really don't want to fund exploration. They want to fund this sort of refining of what you currently do. So I think to have companies actually last for longer, what they need to do is bring from outside the funding of the sort that, that is done in the venture world in to fund the new ventures within those companies. So they have to be discrete, cut off, and a separate investment. You yeah. can't put them into the pool owned by the shareholders as a whole. That's correct. In fact, that's sort of what's done now is, is it's all a pool. There there may be growth investors and return investors in your same thing. No, let's separate them, ring fence investment. So if Boeing wants to invest in the 797, now that they've done the Dreamliner, get funding from a venture pool that's ring fence within Boeing to do that, that venture and to turn it over to Boeing when it's up and running. They'd buy it, would they? Yes. Yeah, so there would be some exit route for this associate. That's correct. In fact, there would be an exit price and an exit formula all, all devised so that, the, so that the risk capital investors could earn a return commensurate with that. But the shareholders of Boeing would get a de-risked, successful investment. They wouldn't get the upside of taking all the risks themselves, but they didn't take the downside either. What do companies say when you put forward this proposition? It's a it's a fairly radical break, even though, of course, the, the funds are there, the money is there, and those venture capitalists have been making rather poor returns recently, so they might like some injection of something else. Yes. Well, basically, they're used to me saying radical things to them, so they're not, they're not <laughs> taken back. Is anybody going to do this? Yes, yes. There's a couple of companies uh, I'm working with that I believe are going to do this. Also, I think the, the venture world is interested because there's a real synergy, right? If you could take, if you can take, and I'm not working with Boeing, I'm using that as a hypothetical, but if you could take all Boeing's capabilities and have that at your disposal to create that, but have, have the space and the entrepreneurial nature to be able to do it, it's, it's a win-win. There's a big organizational question, though. Who runs this? To whom is this new pod-off associate responsible? It's going to have to be to both. You're going to have to have a governance structure that where the venture capitalists who put up all the money you know, have a say, but you're also going to have to have the receptor company also because it's got what you produce has got to fit with the goals and desires of the receptor company. So it's got to be joint governance. Is that going to produce a sort of interlocking um, shareholder structure rather like the way the suppliers in Japan became so closely involved with the companies they were supplying stuff to. Is, has, has Japan pioneered this 50 or more years ago? <laughs> it's an analog. I, I wouldn't say so much that they've pioneered it, but they've shown, I think, that you can be creative on how you deploy capital and who deploys capital against what goals. And so I would say that the Japanese and Korean conglomerates actually provide an analogy that's useful. Now, this is very interesting, but it's more than just think tank stuff because you think it's necessary for the health of our society, for the health of the world, the way the world runs innovation and business. I think so. I think the world will suffer terribly to the extent that the large corporations around the world stultify and get into this dance with the, their capital markets that cause them not to be able to be as innovative as they could otherwise be. Yes, there is another kind of capitalism that doesn't require capital. A laptop on a desk that you rent by the month for $250 or pounds or something, financed with borrowings from your parents or something, and you can, in theory, 
in the app world anyway, get a worldwide audience with no capital whatsoever. Capitalism without capital. But that's not going to address the great big problem you set up the Martin Prosperity Institute to get involved with. No, that's right. I agree. I do think that capital is less the constraint than it used to be. It's not like it's disappeared, of course, but it's, it's less of a constraint. Talent is the thing that now you, you need. You need an idea, talent that creates a product market concept and can deliver it. The problem related to the Martin Prosperity Institute is that that talent is now seizing a bigger and bigger piece of the economic pie, and there's just not enough left for that 51st percentile uh, person. And that's a challenge because what do you want to do? Say to talent, stop it. No, right? It's wonderful when it expresses itself to create uh, new companies. Redirect yourself purposefully. Yes, yes. That's that's what I would say. I would say the best talent for the 21st century are the ones who will create something wonderful that utilizes the best the most everything about their employees rather than just a little piece, their arms and legs or, or their time at, time at their desk. No, their creative energy and their creative juices. Last question. You ran the Rotman Business School or were head of the Rotman Business School for quite a long time and you started the school as a whole thinking about thinking. Are business schools changing the way they teach, the stuff they teach, to reflect the changes in the capital markets, the 21st century, the connected world? Are they really doing it or are they still teaching how to run mass production companies of the kind that dominated the 20th century? I think they're changing, but Peter, I hate to say this about my industry, it's too slow. And I, I think that the likelihood of business education being severely disrupted is, is high. I gave a talk at the Academy of Management where I predicted U.S. business schools there will be, in 25 years from now, 10% of the full-time tenure stream professors as there are today, 10%. So I'm fearful that the move is too slow and that people are going to do something else. What it is, we don't know, but something else. So I would encourage business school deans to light a fire under the, the need for change, create a burning platform that's too complacent. What, what, what do, do um, mass online uh, courses, for example, that's been a sort of uh, instinctive reaction over the past five years? Well, that's going to be one thing where people are going to say, it's not differentiated enough for me to pay $100,000 for a two-year program. I'll pay $5,000 online and get and get what I need. But they're also listening to Peter Thiel, who says, save the $100,000 and invest in an entrepreneurial adventure. It'll be a whole bunch of different things that I think is going to just is going to suck the life out of the MBA business unless it really changes faster than it's currently changing. Because they are still the schools still too wedded to the 20th century style of corporation. I think so, and also just wedded to disciplines that have been created and then have a life of their own. So this is the way we teach marketing. Wedded to the corporations or not, is this is the way we teach marketing. This is the way we teach accounting, as opposed to what would really be necessary going forward. They're not asking that question to enough of an extent. I'll never say that they're not at all and there aren't good people in it. No, no, no. It's just not enough, not fast enough. Many thanks to Roger Martin of the Martin Prosperity Institute in Toronto. I'm Peter Day. This is the Drucker Forum Report. More podcasts coming up soon.